Empire podcast this week, we are joined by the director who wouldn't grow up, David Lowry, director of the brand new Peter Pan movie, Peter Pan and Wendy. Plus, we're joined by two authentic members of British acting royalty, the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry stars Penelope Wilton and Jim Broadbent. Oh, it's a little bear. All that and more on the movie podcast. It isn't a little bear. It's still in its pyjamas because this podcast is being recorded at stupid o'clock. So even more so than any episode in our history, apologies in advance. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, which is no word of a lie being recorded on Friday morning. It is 6.24 a.m. Now I know how breakfast TV presenters must feel. Why are we doing this? I'm sorry. Yes, it's Helen O'Hara's fault. It is genuinely Helen O'Hara's fault. It is. Uh, Although you could, if you wish, blame the Guardians of the Galaxy as well. I think we could probably say that, can't we, Helen? We could say why you're. We could say we we could say why you're you're getting us up uh, early, geek. Yeah, the the embargo will be up by the time this goes up. But but also, you can't break the embargo because you haven't yet seen the film. Because I haven't yet seen the film, or indeed signed the embargo. And you're not telling (laughs) people about the thing. You're not telling people what you thought about the film because you haven't seen the film yet. Indeed, yeah. I can't. I literally can't. I thought it was a film. That That's my only thoughts probably so far. Um, but no, I'm going to see Guardians of the Galaxy this morning and it messed up our entire recording schedule. Um, but then I'm going to write the review, hopefully very quickly, and uh, hopefully get it on time, online in time for the deadline. Because there's nothing like a well-considered, well-thought-out <laughs> review to really get the, the juices flowing. Sometimes stuff. that instant reaction is the right one, I'm hoping. Yeah. Is it just going to be like 480 words of, I am Groot, I am Groot, I am Groot, and then you just hand it in, put star rating on the end? What? How are you in my computer? There you go. That's the way to do it. All right. Well, as a, a Helen, a renowned Guardians hater, is writing a review of Guardians oh, 3. This is going to be interesting. That is a I'm good not, point. I, you like, are a Guardian hater. I'm not a Guardian hater. That's, oh, she's, you that's kind of, she's a Guardian reader. It's going to be, it's, <laughs> but a Guardians hater. Uh, this could be this could be an interesting clash of sensibilities. No, uh, because they, all they do is read the Guardian and complete the crossword. So oh, in, in that movie, I, I've read, I've read, I've read. I don't, I don't know anyone who's seen the movie here, obviously, uh, and who is bound by a terrifying embargo and NDA. So let's move on swiftly, shall we? Let's uh, welcome our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. Hello, James. Did you wake up this morning and watch the sunrise on a grateful universe? A little bit. I have a, I have one of those sunrise alarm clocks. So it, you know, which which sort of gradually gets brighter and brighter and brighter, like you're looking at the core of the sun, uh, not the newspaper. But uh, so so that 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 woke me up. I looked at the clock and I was like, I fucking hate them both. And then I came downstairs and I made myself, as is my want, a toasted buttered marmited bagel. Dropped the motherfucker and of course <laughs> sticky side down on the floor. But I tell you this, I tell you this at six o'clock in the morning, I give no fucks. I ate the bastard anyway because I was hungry and I didn't have time. So wow. I'm probably going to die from some kind of floor bacteria on my marmite bagel. Bacteria. I've yes. been to your house. It's a very, very clean house. Mm. Uh, however, I still would not eat anything that was on the floor. There is no, no five-second rule as far as I'm concerned. Well, no, th- I think the five-second rule applies if it's dry side down. If it's wet side down, there is no rule. There is just no. put it in the bin. But there's also no rule that says you have time to make more breakfast at six o'clock in the morning. So I was like, that's it, I'm doing it. I'm no rule it. covers this situation Throwing at all. Really. To the wind. Are you going to have stomach cramps all the way through, like uh, like Kane in Alien? Yeah, it, that is almost certainly what's going to happen. It's it's really grossed me out actually because I'm normally very funny about food on the floor. Why did I was you just do like, it? Then? I can't, well, I can't do the podcast having not eaten anything like like the middle of the night. Yes, you can. So, I am. 
well, you know, that's your 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 show. You're going to pass out. Breakfast is for wimps, point. as Dale Boy Trotter once oh. said. It's the most important meal of the day. It's very important. Yeah, I had I had a lovely breakfast actually. Um, I had I had Bon Maman Violet Fig yogurt. If you haven't tried it, it's the greatest yogurt in the world. I'm telling you. It's you had so Violet good. Figs for breakfast. You know what Shakespeare would have said about that, don't you? Uh, well, he would have made a dirty joke, is what Shakespeare Indeed. would have done. So he would have fitted right in here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, with with some with some raspberries and some granola. So it's nice to have something creamy first thing in the morning, isn't it? Oh God, it's too early for this. Just thought I, I would reaffirm my reputation as the modern day Shakespeare by making a lewd joke. <laughs> yes, if you'd done it in iambic pentameter, I'd have let you get away with it. <laughs> Who says I didn't? I, I check back. Maybe I did. Shall we do a podcast? Oh God, help us! Yes, please. Also trying desperately not to wake my little daughter who is in the room next door. So if she comes in at any point, this is your fault, Helen O'Hara. Yeah, I, I, I understand. <laughs> uh, all right. So I asked for questions last night. It wasn't a panicked shout out. It was more of a considered shout out. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless. Uh, anyway, it yielded a whole bunch of interesting questions, some of which actually require thought and research, and uh, we won't be doing those. <laughs> we will be doing, however, uh, it's from at Daniel Holmes 93 and it also allows us to get a little bit of movie news out of the way. And it says, why are they making Dodgeball 2 when the first is perfect? All right. So we should contextualize this, shouldn't we, first of all? Hmm. This is in response to the news that broke last night that the the rumours are true, that there is a Dodgeball sequel in development and that Vince Vaughn is on board and it has been announced, but it all seems still very, very early days. There's no director attached, no Rawson Marshall Thurber, uh, which, frankly, given his track record post-Dodgeball, <laughs> may not be a bad thing. Uh, ben Stiller apparently is considering it because he's not sure about bringing White Goodman back. Uh, perhaps burned by the experience of Sulat 2, one of the great terrible sequels. Uh, he maybe doesn't want to go there again. But uh, but Vince Vaughn is certainly on board as Peter Lafleur. Um, whether we get other members of the Dodgeball cast, the beloved Dodgeball cast, who knows? But uh, you know whether we're going to get Justin Long and Alan Tudyk and Stephen Root and Missy Pyle and. Who else? Who else is going to be in this? I mean, obviously, is is, is it going to see the return of Blade? Laser. Blazer. Well, we were saying this last night. I'm almost certain that's how this got greenlit. That Marvel said, yeah, we're going to make a film. They said, what the film? They said, it's going to be Blade. And then there was a delay. And then someone went, Laser. And then someone went, <laughs> Blazer. And then Dodgeball 2 came about. Yeah, I believe you've met my fitness conciliary, Maurice. <laughs> Maurice. <laughs> and then, I, honestly, I will never remember the name of Missy Pyle's character, ever. Oh, that's, no. I, it's it's yeah. really hard to say, so you can't even, like, you know, chant it off and get it in your head. Like, it no. just... It, Do you yeah. not mean his conciliary, Michel? Is it Michel or Maurice? Michel. Oh, Michel. Michel. I, I got that completely wrong. <laughs> I watched it late last night to try and prep myself for this because I, I can never remember what comes after Blade, Laser, Blazer. And <laughs> well, it is, it's, Michel, bar, it? it's Michel and then Missy Pyle's character. And I watched it again last night and that mm. scene is so funny. Uh, yeah, I, I, that movie I, I love. I love to bits. But uh, this raises an important philosophical question, which we should tackle at 6.38 mm. in the morning on a Friday. <laughs> uh, does the existence of a crappy sequel affect the the existence of the of the first movie if a, if a first movie or a previous movie is perfect and it is followed by a piece of poo trying not to swear in case my daughter comes in uh, a piece of poo uh, does it fuck the whole thing up damn it no i mean 
Yes, I think I think we we are we come at this from from I I have long long established my pissing in the pool analogy, uh, and I think there is only so many times you can urinate in a swimming pool before it becomes mainly urine and bad sequels. I feel I feel like so yeah so you have a perfect film. All the sequels in the world don't make Aliens a lesser film, and all the sequels in the world don't make Alien a lesser film. But then, in my head, I am able to compartmentalize and say that the saga just ended with Aliens. Like, I've managed to do that. But with Star Wars, the bad feeds in with the good, and it does affect the way I see things. Why so, does it do that, James? But it's exactly the same thing. It's hard to say. I think it's more to do with with tied in mythologies. Like it, it, it all gets. In. I, I don't know why I'm able to do it with Aliens. I really don't. But genuinely, I, every time there's a bad Star War it takes something away from Star Wars. So for example, now, you know, the original Star Wars, a classic film, a perfect film. Now, whenever I watch it and, uh, and you know, you see Leia and Obi-Wan Kenobi and all that, sort of, I'm like, yeah, but you hung out and that, I saw the bit when you were her babysitter and all this, like it, it's messed with the timeline. It's fucked it up. Admittedly, that's prequelness, not sequelness. But even bad sequels, I think can tarnish the previous film. Prequels do it worse, but sequels can do it too. I think, Look, I think you can, you know, differentiate out and you can strategically ignore the bad ones. I mean, you know, I, I feel like we're all strategically ignoring everything in Highlander basically after Highlander. Um, yeah, the TV shows were kind of fun at times, but like basically we're ignoring <laughs> mm-hmm. everything in Highlander except the, the I mean, even the they one ignored film. Highlander too, so. Yeah, it, and rightly so. And And like there have been a number of different franchises that have strategically reset. I mean, well, um, Something like Superman Returns that decided that nothing after Superman 2 ever happened. Mm. Um, rightly, even though we also now don't really pay any attention to Superman Returns. <laughs> but so, so you do find yourself kind of forced to kind of get into these, these weird, twisty situations just to, just to continue to enjoy the first one as much as it deserves. I also think like with comedies in particular, it is very, very difficult to, to kind of you know, hit that hit that high note again. It's it's not quite impossible. I think we've we've discussed it in the past. There are three great comedy sequels, direct sequels. That's an interesting number. You just I don't know, plucked just it arbitrarily out of the air. Absolutely out of the air. No, no, right? Name yeah. them. I want yes, to know. Please go for it. Some like it hotter. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but what, what they did Much with that do about was, something. <laughs> what they did with, with um, Some Like It Hot was they were like, we had a good time on this. We want to do something like this again. And they made a completely different film called Irma La Douce. You know, mm. that's kind of what you do. That's, that's I think, almost optimal in these situations. You get the gang back together again, but you don't you necessarily... the gang back together, but don't make a sequel. So the way that Fierce Creatures, the superior follow-up to Fish Called Wanda, did exactly the same thing. Just getting, just getting the gang back together again, but for even more lols, which yes. was what John Cleese said going into it. He said, "I want this sequel to have even more lols." He lemurs. said lols, lols and lemurs. Wow. He did say lols. He was the first person to use that that term. Use that term. That's amazing. Yeah. Who would have thought? Anyway, so so yeah. Look, the the first dodgeball is is rare and precious, and I will be delighted if this lives up to it. But I'd be surprised too. This is remarkable dodging up the question, Helen. What are the three great comedy sequels? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Adam's Family Values. Yes. I don't know about better than the first, but oh, it is it's very better good. than the first. It's significantly better than the first. Okay, well let's not go crazy, yeah. James. No, it is. It is. It's brilliant because it takes the best character from the first one and basically makes the film around her. So yes. It is better than the first. It is it is it, it is, is fantastic. And it has that that great line. Um, all this I could forgive, but Debbie pastels. Oh, amazing! Um, Gremlins too, maybe. 
I oh don't know my better God, than the first, but it's a great film. No, I mean, so it's a very different film. It's that classic thing, as you say, when when you know Cameron did it with Terminator Two and Aliens, and then of course we have Gremlins Two, which takes something which is a horror comedy and turns it into the most deranged, demented, wacky kid-friendly comedy quite frankly imaginable uh, we did a back-to-back gremlins gremlins 2 double bill for christmas was it the year before last? was it last year time has no meaning to me uh, i think it might have been last year actually we went down to the prince charles and watched them back to back and i have to say gremlins 2 like coming from gremlins into gremlins 2 gives you whiplash like it's such a tonal <laughs> shift it's it quite jarring it's it's a live action like cartoon, but it it's is. yeah, so it's a Looney Tune. Yeah, hundred percent that. Absolutely mm. love it. And of course, I think for the third inarguable, you know, great comedy sequel, uh, Bogus Journey, Bill and Ted, which is better than the first one, which is better. And I will die on this hill. I will die on this hill and hock a loogie on my evil dead me or mm. good dead me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bogus Journey is the best of the Bill and Ted's. Wow, that is okay. A fact. I mean, are those the three great comedy sequels? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think I said the three great comedy sequels. You I said, said there are, there are three, three great comedy sequels, and then you went on to list <laughs> Adam's Family Values, great. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and the other one that you Shrek talked about. Two. Shrek 2, yes. Gremlins, oh, no. Gremlins 2. Gremlins 2. I don't like okay. Shrek 2. I think all of those films, I think Shrek 2 is far superior to the first, um, but... Those are all three films that I, I would accept as being very, very good comedy sequels. I don't know. Is this, such a, this, is, this is absolutely not the question that the person asked. But <laughs> I don't care. It's very early. <laughs> but it's related to Dodgeball too, isn't it? And uh, I don't know. This is a really tricky one. Uh, it, I'm me, so I have to mention Evil Dead 2, which is a weird... Uh, like oh, Gremlins yeah. 2, it's a comedy sequel to a film that was not a comedy. Mm. Uh, although it does still have aspects of horror in it, but being the greatest film ever made, it's the answer to every question that's ever asked on these well, podcasts. Army of Darkness is the true comedy sequel because that's full comedy. It is full very comedy. little horror. Yes, yes. Although Fede Alvarez is Evil Dead, uh, once again he said this film has to have all the lols <laughs> going into it. <laughs> <the sense. laughs> It's a, it's a laugh a minute, folks. <laughs> it really is. It's a chuckle fest. Those are very, very good ones. We talked about this a little bit in the past, haven't we? I think a great comedy sequel is possibly the hardest film to make. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. But, you know, I, th- I think that there's a great snobbishness towards comedy anyway. We're obviously overlooking the fact that the Carry On movies did this yeah. 30 times or 30 think- carry-on sequels, each one exponentially better than the one that came before. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, they're not really sequels, are they? They're exactly what you're talking about. They're getting the gang back together yes, to exactly. do a different story. So it's, yeah. it's, exactly, yeah, it's yeah. fine. Now, maybe yeah. that's what this is going to be. Maybe, maybe Dodgeball is. 2 isn't going to continue the story necessarily of Peter the Fleur and the average Joes, but it'll be all new. I love Dodgeball, but it's not aged gracefully, has it? Like, it's problematic in a number of ways. <laughs> There are a couple of lines you maybe wouldn't get away with now. No, I would say so. I mean, look, Steve the Pirate, here for him all day. Yeah. But uh, I, I would suggest that there are some certain other moments that Some maybe... patches of Houlihan lines sure, uh, would sure. be beyond the pale uh, now, and rightly so. I think I think you could still write pa- and get away with patches of Houlihan these days. Because oh, I think he's it... the character. Yeah. He's a character. Characters you... can say mm-hmm. outrageous things. I think a sequel to Dodgeball is about as much use as a cock-flavoured lollipop. Indeed. Yeah, dodgeball is interesting. Uh, Peter Lafleur is a bit 
grimy at times, shall we say, in his moral outlook on life. But uh, but it is still a beloved film. A beloved film. Hey, also from that year, we had Bad Santa, uh, which is a, an amazing comedy that, that begat a terrible sequel. Yeah. So maybe they should, and, and And hang on, was Zoolander the same year? No, Zoolander was 2001. And Zoolander obviously had a terrible sequel. Anchorman, what year was Anchorman? Anchorman was the same year, 2004, and mm. begat, uh, in my opinion, a very good sequel. But I realise I'm in the minority on that one. Uh, and uh, of course that was also the year of Shaun of the Dead I think 2004 very very good case to be made for one of the greatest years in comedy ever because it also had Shaun of the Dead and that is a fine example of getting the gang back together for future sequels exactly. one of which Hot Fuzz is mm. a great comedy sequel that isn't really a sequel but the answer to this is obviously Police Academy 3 back in training <laughs> <laughs> doubles down on Mahoney you get it's all the, the guys back together it? again. No, Police Academy 4, Citizen Sun Patrol oh, is the last Mahoney. Also had Mahoney. Okay. Before he's replaced by Matt McCoy as Mahoney. Yeah. And <laughs> then you have, you have in Police Academy 3, you know, they turn uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite's set yeah. Into, yeah. into a good yeah. guy. Oh, it's so much fun. So, so much fun. <laughs> Just don't ask me to decide a particular instance of fun from but, that no, movie. But, but you, you, you make actually a good point there, because Police Academy is a genuinely great classic comedy, and Police Academy 2 <laughs> is a good <laughs> film. It's not as good as the first. No, it's great. I, I, will lo I love Police Academy. I think Police Academy 2 is a genuinely good sequel. I don't think it's as good as the first one. I think it's good. I think everything after 2 you get massive diminishing returns. It's just like, these are not good. Have Those you first two films lately? are good. Okay, now here's the problem. No, I haven't. <laughs> it's been a long time, but in my head, the last time I saw Police Academy, it was a stone-cold comedy classic, and I do not wish to be disabused of this notion. I mean, talking about problematic films, that hasn't aged well either. No, well, it has not. It, 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 <laughs> yeah, it hadn't aged well by 1985, let alone It has some good comedy moments in it. It does. Uh, oh, hey, two last ones. Mm -hmm. I realise this is not the question, but two last ones. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is a great comedy sequel that is better than the previous movies. Uh, okay. That is incontrovertible. I'll give you that, that is incontrovertible. Uh, and if we're talking about great comedy sequels, uh, obviously there's a Spinal Tap sequel on the way, an actual Spinal Tap sequel on the way with, with all the original guys back together again. That is terrifying me on a level I cannot even begin to tell you. But if it's terrible, as I suspect it will be, Will it affect Liz's Spinal Tap? No, yeah. it won't. Yeah. Not, in the, not in the least. And I don't think it really matters with comedy sequels. You know, you, you could make the age-old argument about is Aliens diminished in some way by what happens in Alien 3, if you acknowledge Alien 3. <laughs> uh, you know. Well, maybe. I would say it does a bit because obviously you can't then watch Aliens without thinking about the fate of those two characters. And that's yeah. what I would say, weirdly, Prometheus does more to undermine the alien mythology than... Alien 3 does because but again the prequel aspect of it you just ignore it you just ignore it I can't, the, I can't the movies remain. it's living and, in but, my head but I think I think it's less important with comedy sequels I think it's less important no, I think that's true because yeah, comedy the like, yeah. yeah the, the yeah. world building mythology is secondary to the lols I will yeah. uh, can I bring another one in that we haven't mentioned uh, 20, 22 Jump Street I did think of that I, I did think that's of mentioning that one. as one of my three it's a great movie that's um, a great I one. don't know if it's Better. Yeah, I don't know. If it's better, but it's, it's certainly not far off. Like no. it's 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 definitely funny. Even for the for the coda for that, like that that is significant laugh factor. So, yeah, I think that might be that might be one of the forty seven three greatest comedy sequels in in history. Uh, but yeah. not my wording. Would would Paddington two class as a comedy <gasps> sequel? There it is. 
Yes. I, I mean, I don't see the Paddington films as comedies exactly. But they are very funny. So what yeah. else do you see them as but if they're not? They're more just know? like, they're their own genre of just lovely, life-affirming, happy, happy films. I don't know that that necessarily makes them comedies. I say yeah. let's let's call it Paddington 2 and call it a day. All right. <laughs> Again, we've answered a question with Evil Dead 2 and Paddington 2. We are nothing <laughs> if not on point. Uh, let's move on because this is no longer a tight 20 this section. No. Uh, sorry to the question asker. We completely and utterly mutated that question away from what you originally asked. But uh, in short, I don't think if Dodgeball 2 is poo, as I quite frankly expected to be. <laughs> Dodgeball Blue would be a, a yes. bold title. Uh, try dodging that, and uh, I don't think it's going to affect the sanctity of the original Dodgeball, which is still preserved, as rightly, in the Louvre. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, we are still on Twitter. We've been stripped of our, uh, of our blue ticks. Uh, but we are still on Twitter. You can still slide into my DMs. I am still at Chris Hewitt, and unless he comes up with a, you know, Musk comes up with an incredible idea to make people pay for their usernames, which I wouldn't put it past him, to be quite frank, but we, we shall see. I am still at Chris Hewitt on there, and you can get in touch with me via DMs, or you can reply to any of my panicked shoutouts every now and again, or just reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing, of course. Shall we have a guest? Let's do it. Who do you want? Do you want David Lowry or do you want Penelope Wilton, star of Shaun of the Dead, or Jim Broadbent, star of Hot Fuzz? Which one do you think is more likely to be up at this time in the morning? Which one do I think is more likely to be up at this time in the morning? Yeah. I mean, it's not a booty call, James. <laughs> I mean, look, sure, go for it. If you wish to, if you wish to drop, drop some numbers on Penelope Wilton, go for it. <laughs> Have you ever done a booty call, James? <laughs> I'm going to drop some numbers on this person. Look, it's very early in the morning. I feel like numbers have been dropped on me. If you were to text Dame Penelope Wilson <laughs> right now for a booty call, yeah. what would you say? I'd say meet me in boots. That's how it works, right? <laughs> I need to pick up some bubble bath. <laughs> for our sexy a super druggy call on. is not the same. Super druggy call? Oh, no, that's not. Don't make one of those. <laughs> Let's segue nicely from that into two of the most beloved members of the British acting institution, shall we? Dame Penelope Wilton, if you please, and Jim Broadbent, who I learned turned down, I think, an MBE years ago and said that things like that were effectively, I'm paraphrasing, but he said were effectively silly and uh, he, he didn't believe in it. So I wonder if that caused any tension between him and Dame Penelope Wilton during the filming of The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, which is adapted by Rachel Joyce from her own book. There's now a couple of books uh, about this, and it's about a, a man called Harold Fry, played by Jim Broadbent, uh, who gets some news of an old friend in trouble. Uh, an old friend, Queenie, is uh, dying of cancer and is now in a hospice, so facing her final days. And he decides to just start walking towards her. And she's in Berwick and Tweed. It's hundreds of miles away. And he decides to start miles. walking. Hmm. 600 miles. Uh, is that, is that as, as a crow flies, 600 miles. And he decides to start walking towards her. Penelope Wilton plays his wife, who is very hostile towards his idea at first, uh, a bit frightened by it. She doesn't really understand why her husband's doing this. And then, does she come around? I wouldn't, I couldn't possibly say. I couldn't possibly say, but if you think that this movie is just going to be Penelope Wilton in a room looking angry for uh, for two hours, you're much mistaken. She gets a lot more to do. Uh, so, yes, I spoke to them both on Zoom the other week and uh, had a great time talking to ruddy, bloody acting legends. Enjoy. 
We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the stars of the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry, the legendary Jim Broadbent and Penelope Wilton. How are you both? Very well. well yeah, you. very well. Thank you. Good, good, good. It feels to me like you both had very, very different experiences filming this. <laughs> Jim, this feels like an action movie for you in many ways. Well, yes, I, um, it's a man who goes on a journey and he certainly does go on a journey physically and emotionally. And um, yes, so we... Uh, I, I started filming in Kingsbridge in Devon and ended up in Barry-Gron-Tweed. And I stayed in about um, a dozen different hotels in the way north, filming in more or less in sequence as we moved up the country. And But uh, Penelope was at, um, at home most of the time. Yes, I was in four walls with a lot of very, very thick net curtains that um, were covering every window. So, and and living a very solitary life and a more and more frustrated and annoyed life because uh, as he became more famous, I became more and more askance as what was going on. Because yes, he, um, he left. Uh, he left. Mm-hmm. He left. Devon and worked yeah. his way north. And I can't believe he's ever going to come home. So um, the journeys are very, dis- very, very um, unsimilar in one way and very similar in another because they both go on a journey. I go on a journey in my head and he goes on a physical journey as plus is one that he mm. finds out things about himself. And we both do find out things about ourselves by our different journeys that we've we've partaken in. It's a, Yeah, it's a beautifully observed character study. But Penelope, were you ever envious of, of Jim getting to I don't know. Live that sort of peripatetic life where he was. He was working. I mean, it's a real. It's a real person, or me as Maureen. I think Maureen was aghast at what was going on. I mean, the fact that you would perhaps even sleep outside or clean yourself in a stream. She's she's somebody who can't let go of her things. She has to have her things around her because they make her feel more stable. She has to. She doesn't know what she'd do without her thing. The world she's built up. This sort of this armour that she's built around herself. So, no, I don't think she'd cope very well. And me as a person, if it didn't rain all the time, I'd have quite a nice time. <laughs> and Jim, was it a very arduous shoot for you? Obviously, you didn't you didn't uh, tread every step of the way that, that Harold did, but... Uh, at the same time, it does. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, shots of your feet in various stages of of disarray. Uh, was that something that that took a bit of? Yeah, I mean, there was an awful lot of that went into the filming. I think, um, no, it's uh, some. It's quite a hard film in many ways because it's uh, I, a lot of the time I was on my own, you know, and it's, uh, and uh, with so it was. Finding that in, internal journey, and and uh, normally you have you know, interaction with actors and dialogue to where it, all those parts of the journey are revealed to you and to the audience. But so to keep it, um, an awful lot of it when I was on my own and walking or you know, just sitting or wherever was um, quite a challenge for me, um, unlike anything I've done before really so it was a that was that was a, I and I enjoyed the challenge it was a but it was uh quite hard in a way being being so solitary for so much of it and then when people did come very often it was just for a day you know and they were and they had, oh, have a lovely interaction with that actor 
for a day and then that's it then i'm on the road again it was it was, it was fascinating altogether but then when you do have those scenes together without giving too much away about how things resolve for for Harold and, and and Maureen. There's a there's two lovely scenes. There's a, there's a really really weighty emotional scene about halfway through, and then there's a, a a lovely scene towards the end. You get a sense in those scenes when you when you're together of this years of unsp- you know, a, a, a marriage. You get years of uh, of unspoken heartbreak. You get unspoken emotions. There's subtext there. Can you talk about how the two of you? found that how you how you made that connection how you filled in the blanks of of that marriage in those brief scenes it's in the writing isn't it, it, it i i was going to say the same i the writer had has done that i mean given that you're given the the context and you're given the set in which the, the, there's a cafe in one scene and very tweed in the other the two i think you're talking about i mean those are two that the, the story has a, the story has filled you in, and their past relationship in the flashbacks have given you some idea. But actually, when you come to play the scenes, it's all in the writing, because you can't make it up or you haven't got time to spend a lot of time talking to one another. I mean, we met early on, and then it was off he goes and I'm at home. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of discussion, was there, Jim? No, but I mean, we filmed the the earlier scene when they're in the before he the very short scene really before he leaves mm-hmm. and um their communication or lack of it is very clear in that very first scene where mm-hmm. he says i'm going i'm going to the post and and, and when will you be back when you be back i mean it's and that's there's no there's no love uh, expressed or in, implied in that it's just you know, something very mechanical, and you you do get a picture of a a rather sterile relationship, even in that um, short scene. So you mm. you know that is the the start of the journey. So it's the, everything that comes after is mm. is a development from mm. that. It, it's it's beautifully written as well, and uh, Rachel Joyce adapted her own her own novel for this, which is unusual. Uh, and I wonder why it doesn't happen more often, where where novelists adapt themselves for for the big screen. Uh, Jim, you you worked with Rachel years ago. Yeah, she she used to be an actress, and, and uh, she she played my daughter in The Winter's Tale in uh, Sheffield in nineteen eighty three, I think eighty seven, eighty nineteen eighty seven. Wow, uh, she was Perdita to my Leontes, and she's lovely, lovely actress, great. I think one of the reasons she was able to do the screenplay so well, as she said, she's here today when we're doing these interviews was that there was 12 years between when she wrote the book and um, when she said, or at least 10 years until she, so she saw it as a very different thing and she wasn't as emotionally attached to it in the same way as she had been 10 years previously. And um, so she was able to look at it with with new eyes, Mm. um, but still keep the same, absolutely keep the same story, but she was able to, to to see it again, uh, as it were, mm-hmm. and um, and had a clarity about it because I think the the characters are very clearly drawn. There, there's there's very there's not very much dialogue really, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you still get as as Jim described in that first scene, um, 
And also the scene earlier when we're having breakfast, you know that uh, and Maureen is not too keen that he's got that letter from Queenie. I yeah. mean, it's all done in, in, in very few words. It's just mm. the actions and the way they they don't interact, mm. actually, that tells you that there's a marriage that mm. has gone a bit sterile. I, I know from reading interviews with Rachel, she said that she has at times tried to put these characters away, but they keep calling her back. And obviously there was a Maureen Fry novella released very recently. Penelope, were you were you looking at that with, with great interest? I was, and I read the audio book of it. So for, for, um, for and it was fascinating because that's another wonderful journey that she goes on. It's, it's called Maureen Fry and the Angel of the North, mm. and she takes a journey. And um, Harold stays at home. It's a novella. It's not as long as the. Oh, I haven't read it. No, it's so exciting. You should read it. I get the audio book. Yeah, because <laughs> I did the audio book of the Harold Fry yeah. original. So, so we're all over. We're all over. <laughs> Maureen and Harold. Long may it continue. <laughs> yes. This is a, this is your franchise. This is this is your this is your Marvel. This is your Star Wars. I think this is this is it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's our Marvel. That's yeah, a good that's way it. of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> the Maureen and Harold cinematic universe. Um, Not of outfits. We wear cardigans. <laughs> <laughs> I am one hundred percent there for that. Absolutely. Um, and I want to talk about about the, the, the two of you as well, because obviously you've worked together in the past. You have uh, on on Iris. We met on a beach in Iris. Yeah. We'd known each other on and off, and actually yeah. we've tried to work with one another a couple of times. I think so. Yes, yeah. and it uh, hasn't worked so in, out. The, in the same. Circling around in the same circles. Over the years, has your have your approaches to acting changed, or are you, relatively speaking, still the same actors that you were when you started out? Every, I mean, you you change a bit with every job you do. I mean, and you work with, I work with lots of different directors and different actors, and in in inevitably, you, tiny by even by tiny increments, you change change as you develop and you become more confident mm. i mean to just practically when i first was in front of a tv camera or film camera if it came in close for a close-up i would be totally aware of it and self-conscious and with that you get rid of that and then and, mm. you, and then you can just be yourself and not worry about that because you just just do the acting you want to do it so all those sort of things develop and you change and get mm. better and more confident but, but you are influenced by people you work with if they're good. You do find you 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 pick up on things that that you have you have noticed about how they work. And um I I find I'm a much better listener now because I'm I've been with people who have listened extremely well. You know, it's not always the person who does all the pioneer techniques as it were. It's often the person who's just listening that grounds something mm. um it's it's very interesting the whole thing uh, of, of acting because mm. you never stop you never stop learning as as jim said because every part you do throws up different um different things that you have to take on board but at the same time all you have to do is try to make it sound as real as possible and mm. that doesn't ever ever change really no it's just maybe you get a bit better at it mm. Of course, you've you've got some shared directors in your past as well, Richard Eyre, of course, uh, but you've both worked with Edgar Wright, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. 
I, I, I don't know what you're, whether you had a, a similar experience uh, uh, on Shaun of the Dead, obviously Penelope, and then Hot Fuzz for, for you, Jim. What, were the, what was your Edgar Wright experience like? He was great. Uh, oh, he's heaven. Yeah. I wish a, he'd, ring, he'd ring us up and yes, cast us in something else, don't yeah, you? <laughs> yes, um, I saw him the other month and, uh, at a screening and he said, um, oh, we should have lunch. And I think, yes, yes, I'll, I'll have so, Edward, Edgar. Oh, yeah, uh, I didn't say Edward, I said Edgar. Uh, you said Edgar. <laughs> I, saw him, I saw him at the theatre the other evening when we were watching Guys and Dolls, and uh, he said the same, the same thing. He said, we must get together. Yeah. <laughs> so well, hopefully I'm keeping him to that. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is it. You guys have got to work together again. Absolutely. You've got to excuse these people when you see them. <laughs> yeah, calling it by the correct name helps, Jim, I think. <laughs> <Sorry>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Edmund, Edmund, no. Edmund, Edmund, Edmund Wright, isn't that? Yeah, he's a guy directed Atonement, uh, if I if I remember rightly. Uh, but also, <laughs> Jim, I read in an interview that you said that you had missed out on appearing in Shaun of the Dead. What happened there? Um, I, I, <laughs> I think I was asked to be in it, and I, I, for, for one reason or another, I didn't take it. And then I um, saw Shaun of the Dead and thought. I must have been mad. This is this is wonderful. So I saw them at the as a Edgar and um, Simon at the at the BAFTA Nick. at the at, at the BAFTAs, and I thought I'll. Uh, I went up and I sh- used the BAFTAs for what they're meant to be used for, which is schmoozing. And I said I made a terrible mistake turning down Shaun of the Dead. Um, so please uh, don't bear any grudge, and I'll be do do whatever you want otherwise. So then, short um, hot fuzz came along. So. The, uh, the schmoozing BAFTAs work. Yes. <laughs> Amazing, Penelope. That that could have been your like uh, that could have been another Jim Broadbent experience for you. Obviously, you got to work with Bill Nye in the end, but yes, I did. I I got to work with Bill, which was very nice. But I knew Bill. He'd I played. We've played husband and wife. We played lovers. I've done radios with Bill where I've sat under a duvet and, and it, on a chair pretending I was in bed with him. And doing a certain amount of rustling, which is, of course, makes you laugh on radio because there's, you know, you do all this and uh, and there's somebody else in the room with you when you're supposed to be having a very intimate time. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> it makes you, you have to be careful, you know, because you can laugh quite easily, can't you? Yes, it is very risky. And um, very risky. Anyway, so I work with Bill a lot and um, I'm hoping that this um, <laughs> this <laughs> relationship um will continue with Jim here sitting next to me. I would hope so. <laughs> the Harold and Maureen cinematic universe. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. I would I would love to see these characters again, I, I have to say. But before I before I let you both go, uh Jim, there's been a, a lot of talk recently about the third Paddington movie. Uh Paddington in Peru. Mm. Have you been contacted? Yes. Yes I'm 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 uh, waiting for more contacts, but it seems to be going ahead, which would be great. I don't think I'll, I'll, I'd be on the plane to Peru, but uh, I'm very happy to, if Paddington's coming back, um, to act with that um, tennis ball again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Penelope, can I? I don't have any power uh, in this, but can I interest you in a role in Paddington in Peru? Oh, yes, and I'd quite like to go to Peru. <laughs> so I could go to Peru and then bring Paddington back <laughs> as Maureen and bring Paddington back <laughs> to see Harold. Absolutely. You see, we yeah. could we could join the franchises. <laughs> this is it. The unlikely pilgrimage of Paddington Bear. That's yeah. 
that's what we need to see next. Uh, amazing. I can't wait to see that. Uh, but it's been it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm going to let you both go. Penelope, Jim, thanks so much, Steve, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so that was Penelope Wilton and Jim Broadbent. Uh, just wonder what you would, how you would do a booty call to Jim Broadbent. I'm a little bear. are you up i'm a little bear um anyway (laughs) wow oh my word uh come and see my hot fuzz jim oh no 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 Should we talk about some movie news? There's, God, been a lot, there's been a please. lot of movie news because CinemaCon happened this week. Uh, and we weren't invited, obviously. They like to keep the Empire podcast away from such matters. Uh, but we, you know, it was the great old jamboree of of cinema for exhibitors, exhibitors, Ex- exhibitors, <laughs> Ex- exhibitors. <laughs> Six fifty six. We're getting there for exhibitors and press in Las Vegas, Viva Las Vegas uh, in the States. Um, and loads of stuff was, was shown. They showed The Flash in its entirety. Mm. Warner Brothers did because they seem to be very, very happy about it. Or perhaps they're also aware that there might be some negative vibes associated with this film and uh, they're doing their best. And maybe they have a genuinely good product. That cert- certainly seems to be the, the scuttlebutt. And uh, they are trying to Lessen those negative vibes, shall we say. But uh, so they showed the flash in this entirety, but there were loads of traders that hit the internet this week mm-hmm. as well. Helen, James, what 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 happened? What 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 leapt out from you for you from CinemaCon? Well, I sat and watched a whole bunch of these last night, and um it's a very strange mix in some ways. So you've got Haunting in Venice. This is the third Poirot film from Kenneth Branagh. I love that you start there. I, I don't know why I started there, I'll be honest, but we're this is what we're doing now. We start so, with um, the best. Start with the best. It's a bizarre trailer, though, for a Poirot film because it goes full horror movie. This trailer, it does. Um, and and you know, y- you still see that. Oh yes, look, he's got another impressive cast, and oh my goodness, there's Michelle Yeoh and so on. But basically, it's it's a horror movie trailer um, that just happens to have Poirot at the end with his gigantic mustache. So I'm. Um, I'm very intrigued, but yeah, Jamie Dornan and Tina Fey are in it. If you if you squint through the darkness, yeah, she gets a line. She gets a line. Tina Fey. She it, does. It, the cast was announced for this because this is obviously finished filming it's out later on this year, and the cast was announced for this. And, and my initial thought was, oh, it's not quite as starry as um, Death on a Nile and the uh, uh, Murder on an Orient Express, and. But then I looked at the trailer and was like, oh, actually, it is pretty starry. You got Tina Fey, you got Kelly Riley. They've managed mm-hmm. to, you know, prize her away from Yellowstone for, for five minutes to actually shoot a film. Uh, and you got Jamie Dornan. And I yeah. believe little Jude Hill from Belfast is in it as well. He is, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so this is an adaptation. Have you read this this one, Helen? No, I don't think I have. It's very hard to keep track uh, sometimes right. of the Agatha Christie's, but I don't believe that I have. Uh, I've read a bit about it. I think it's an interesting um way to sort of sell this and make us maybe sit up and pay attention and go, oh, maybe this isn't just another Poirot business as usual. Maybe the moustache won't have a backstory this time or its own arc. I mean, it obviously has an arc, but not its own story arc. So, you know, I, I thought it was, as, as a trailer, it at least intrigued me. So I think that's probably a quite a good result. I, I would guess. love it if they leaned into this and it actually turns into kind of Poirot unearths the Necronomicon and opens portal to the gates of hell and, you know, the, the angry dead pour through and start tearing people and eviscerating them. I, I, that, it would be a bold, a bold left turn, I'm saying. 
could be Tash versus Army of Darkness. Tash. Tash. Housewares. Yeah, this trailer was a very interesting one for me. Uh, I'm excited by these. I mean, I, 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 I have a soft spot for these movies, despite Death and on the Nile. I keep saying Death and Venice. Uh, Death on the <laughs> Nile not being terribly good. But uh, I do have a soft spot for, for Sir Ken and his uh, his portrayal of Hercule Poirot. This is such a strange trailer, as you say, because it just looks like straight up horror film. And then suddenly Hercule Poirot shows up halfway through the trailer <laughs> and you're so going, weird. what's happening here? And it, it, he has a, he, what appears to be a supernatural incident uh, happen to him. Of course, it mm. won't be. It'll be Scooby full and Scooby Doo. Uh, there's going to be someone behind the curtain pulling little levers and things. But uh, and he'll he'll figure it all out in the end. It's a small smaller cast as well. So I'm going to say right now, Tina Fey did it. Fair. I believe you. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Liz Lemon's gone off the rails. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that looked that looked good and stylish. And so mm. we like the good and stylish stuff. Was there anything else that was good and stylish? Did Did you watch the Transformers: Rise of the Beasts trailer? It confused me so much. Please, someone explain to me what the hell. I like. I get Omicron like that. I I, I remember the cartoon. I remember yes. the trauma um, of 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 that turning up. But I don't understand literally anything else about this trailer. <laughs> I don't understand who's who, what's what. Are we in 1994? Why does no one remember there being a giant robot planet in 1994 in the original Transformers movie? Isn't that something that would have been relevant to mention? What What's happening? Why? See, Helen, you're almost now going back and answering the question again. Uh, yes, it does make a nonsense of Transformers. We actually have a piece up on the website about the mythology <laughs> of the Beast Wars. Transformers made a nonsense of Transformers. <laughs> that is also hey, true. the first Transformers uh, I will defend. The first Transformers was fun. <laughs> but yeah, no, we've got, there's a whole thing. Apparently there's a whole, whole very detailed, absolutely batshit mythology behind the kind of Beast Wars strain of Transformers. So we have an explainer up on the Empire website trying to kind of unpick that nonsense. And there is actually apparently a reason why these robots in disguise think that a, a viable disguise is like a giant mechanical gorilla. Uh, there is actually logic behind that somewhere. But you have what, to they landed on Skull Island or something? A little bit like that, yeah. Right, but okay. uh, and, but I, you know what? I, this was one of these ones where I watched this. I thought, action, good. Robot, animals, interesting, new, you know, good. Uh, uh, period setting, like it. Very much me. Like Because I thought Bumblebee worked very well. But Bumblebee worked very well for two reasons. One, because it was set in the 80s, so it enabled you to use the Gen 1 Transformers, which are the best, look nerd. the best. Uh, <laughs> yes, nerd. And also took me back to my childhood. But I really like that. But more importantly, what worked about Bumblebee was it was a film that had character work in it, which none of the others did. And I think if you have good human drama and you feel connected to character then all of this action means something, especially mm -hmm. like subversive sequences like the quote-unquote car crash sequence in it. Um, and uh, I, I, the, the question which you cannot tell from this trailer is how much of that, how many of those lessons have been learned, right? Like how many, how much of that is going to carry forward into this? Yes, it's another period setting, but will they have gone full Bayhem and abandoned the character? And I just don't think we can tell at this point. I mean, my... My impression from this trailer is very much, no, they have not abandoned mayhem. I mean, look, Anthony Ramos and Dominique Fishback are both really, really talented stars. They're both very good at, you know, characters. Uh, so that does give me some hope. But again, if a robot planet had turned up on Earth in the 90s, I feel like that's something that would still be mentioned. I mean, just... the 90s were a crazy time, Helen. And also, <sighs> it came on the back of the 80s, which were even crazier. So I imagine anything that happened, they just put it down to cocaine. People were doing a lot of drugs back then. Yeah. And this wow. movie is indeed called Cocaine Optimus Prime. So <laughs> <laughs> we don't like, know I, for sure. You know, I'm f fingers crossed, you know. I'm, yeah. 
I'm hopeful, but I did. I do enjoy the big robots hitting each other. I do. I'm a simple woman, but simple I, I just have so many questions. Yeah, I can't believe the the two things you guys have uh, glommed onto from CinemaCon were the Transformers Rise of the Beasts trailer <laughs> and Hercule there's fucking a, there's Poirot. A others too. I mean, what do you want? What do you want? Go and pick one, Chris. Go and pick one. Pick one. I mean, they showed the 20 minutes of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which apparently looks astonishing. But we weren't there and we, we didn't there. get we to didn't see, see that. It. But we could discuss it at least. Sure, it looks brilliant. That's no shock. It was always going to be brilliant. They played uh, um, Melissa McCarthy doing Poor Unfortunate Souls from The Little Mermaid. But again, we can't really comment because they didn't put it online. So yeah, we haven't seen that. Yeah, but apparently it's good, which is which is comforting. You know? Fools of a took. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about some of the stuff we can talk about. The Flash trailer. They, they showed the, mm-hmm. a trailer for The Flash, which had a lot more Michael Keaton uh, as Bruce Wayne. And can I just say that Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne's hair would not have grown in that way? That's um, the thing that took me out of the movie. Wow, that's, the, that's it. That's the thing. How would it have grown, Chris? I mean, not, not, not to go full Helen, but that is a bad wig. That's a bad wig. And that wig is a wig. That's wig, a wig. Alert. wig alert. Wig alert. That's a wig, isn't it? Uh, Please, Academy. <laughs> How you deliver with your timeless humor. <laughs> um, so that took me out of the movie. Also, he says, uh, you want to get nuts? Come on, let's get nuts. And it just has... I mean, apparently the movie's very, very good, but that is one of the tiredest things I've ever mm. seen. Just like, why would you say that? But yeah. everything else looks It's good. not a catchphrase. It's not a catchphrase. It's something he said in the moment to the Joker. It's not like someone went, hey, that's a cool thing you said, Bruce Wayne. You should start saying that all the time. Uh, no. Anyway, but uh, otherwise, it was good to see Michael Keaton back as Batman, mm. uh, bad wig or not, and everything else, yeah, looks... Looks, looks fun. fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah. look. Maybe despite everything, it will be a good movie. Yeah. So that was one thing that that, that screened mm-hmm. at CinemaCon. Uh, apparently, um, there was some more stuff from Wonka, which I'm very, very excited about because many, many things. It's Paul King's first movie post-Paddington, obviously. Mm-hmm. Hugh Grant is an Oompa Loompa. Hugh Grant is mm-hmm. an Oompa Loompa. If you can't get excited for that, then I don't know what to tell you. And uh, Neil Hannon doing the songs. So yes, 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 yes. Very excited. Yes, I mean, yes to all of that. I'm just, you know, I'm still, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm still working on getting past the Wonka prequel. Yeah, I'm with Helen. I'm with Helen. I love Paul King. There are good people in this, but it is a story I just don't care about and don't particularly enjoy. So it's going to have to work particularly hard to turn me around. Yeah, well, you're you're both wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. Probably. Look, I, I, I'm not saying it won't be great. I'm not saying I won't love it. I'm just saying I'm, I'm working on that still. That's all. There was a reveal of the title for the next Conjuring movie, which is going to be The Conjuring 4, and it's going to be called The Conjuring Last Rites, which indicates that this might be the last time we will see Patrick Wilson and Fiora Farmiga back as Ed and Lorraine Warren. There's no director yet, but Patrick Wilson's just directed Insidious 5, so maybe maybe he'll come back and, and finish the job. Finish the job, James! <laughs> For England, England. Uh, <laughs> buy me buy a pint. Look, I've been putting this off. I didn't want to do it because I hate to big up competitors, but it's Dune, so I have to do it. So Vanity Fair had their big Dune feature around their onset thing. Anthony Bresnikan, who is a lovely man, uh, spoke to everyone, saw everything. It's too late; he's seen everything. Uh, and so a lot of Dune Part 2 stuff is now out there, including pictures of, for example, Florence Pugh as mm. Princess Irulan, uh, and uh, and um, your, man, your man Elvis as yeah. Fade Rautha, although albeit in, in kind of scary silhouette. 
Yes. But, uh, well, it, no, it, there's been a poster of him, and he's uh, he's gone full on James Dyer. He's uh, he's a big old baldy. Oh, I knew this. he was bald. You can tell that from right. the silhouette. But I, mm-hmm. I, I was there. A, there's a face poster. I'm there's not a face, face poster. poster. Yeah, there was, it was a semicon. Oh. Someone snapped a picture of it, and uh, whether it was a, officially meant to be online, I don't know. But it, it was online. I'm going to Google it now for the briefest uh, of instants, and then then it vanished into the night like a sandworm in a sandstorm. <laughs> oh yes, I see it now. Oh, he looks he looks very Harkonnen, very scary. I mm. like it, and he does look a little bit more like um, the De Bautista. Character, yes. then he mm. then, then he's, he's been stinging a nappy. The beast of Raban. One should never have a sting in a nappy. I think that's good advice. Uh, yeah, so that's good, good, good for them. But I feel, I feel, I feel sullied by having promoted a competitor. So I'm going to have to offset that by promoting us and saying I, that we are doing. We, what, what are you saying? Go on. I, I'm not sure we're a competitor to Vanity Fair. I think we are. Look, look, they are Does the a young, have scrappy. A with a boot? Up, oh, this is what I'm saying. They're a young, scrappy upstart. You know, they are not uh, a towering behemoth as we are. This is true. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, still, uh, I'm going to do a bit of Empire News, which is that on the Wednesday, the 3rd of May, we are doing an Inside Empire event, an Ask Us Anything Q&A event for VIP subscribers. So if you are a VIP subscriber, do come along, virtually, of course, uh, a link will be provided, to chat to us on Wednesday night between 6 and 7pm and ask us all sorts of questions, because, you know, so feel free to ask us questions about, I don't know, giant robot gorillas. I don't know. Will any of us actually be there, or is it going to be other people? Oh, I, I'm not sure exactly who's going to be there, but there will be some people. I think, uh, I think uh, you, John Nugent, will be there. Beth will be there, I believe. Uh, I will be there, at least in the technical support category, and probably wandering around in the background. Tech waving. support! Exactly. So, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll, it'll, a good time will be had by all. So be there or be, well, elsewhere. Okay, well, should we get back to actual movie news now? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Okay, so they've announced the title of David Gordon Green's Exorcist movie, which I was a lot more excited about before I saw David Gordon Green's Halloween movies, and it is The Exorcist Believer, and it features Ellen Burstyn returning as Chris McNeil, and is it's it going to be Pope's out Exorcist this October. Believer? It is not, although that could be the title of The Pope's Exorcist 2, which was also announced this week because The Pope's Exorcist has done well enough at the box office for them to go, should we do this again? Ah, go on. And Russell Crowe, I think it's fair to say, had some fun doing it. Mm, it seems it did like he that did. Way. Yeah. yeah, he's he's on an accent tear at the moment, isn't he? Like he's. Having, I read a whole thing. Like he talked about uh, doing uh, Love and Thunder. Mm-hmm. That they wanted him to do it in the kind of gladiator esque mid Atlantic kind of English accent, and he was like, no, 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 this has to be a Greek, a full on comedy Greek accent. And he shot it twice: once in a kind of mm-hmm. sort of effete British upper class accent, and once in the Greek one. And they went with the Greek one. I want yeah. to see the the Downton cut of that sequence. Hello, I'm Zeus. No, I do you know, that feel might that might have been an error. Really? In you hindsight, didn't like I didn't enjoy that entire sequence, so it would have made no difference to me what accent I he was using. I think that might have given it. But, an, I don't know. That sequence suffers from a lack of gravitas. Uh, I yeah, love. Yes, I love. That's an understatement. I love Love and Thunder, but perhaps it might have. You know, if, you know, if they'd if they'd gone full RP, maybe it might have introduced an idea of of stakes and that sequence having any meaning wouldn't, wouldn't make much you know cultural sense but but neither did it neither did what is essentially a, a greek american accent really like there's no Fair. reason he would or sound like he Thor, you know it sounds english when he's supposed to be you know i don't know it's Thor technically danish he's from that you know well he's he's an alien james they covered it quite extensively yeah. james. <laughs> <laughs> he, he lives in space on a on a planet 
I think so. you should sound like Utrida Bebenberg. You think everyone should sound I like I do Utrida think everyone Bebenberg. should sound like Utrida Bebenberg. Mm. <sighs> James, you should be pointed out, just sounds nothing like Utrida <laughs> Bebenberg when he does that, that voice, but still. Anyway, That's so The true. Exorcist Believer is coming October 13th, and The Pope's Exorcist 2 is coming at some point, and there's nothing you could do to stop it, mm. believe me, I've tried. Uh, and there was also news this week, there was a Hunger Games trailer for the, the, the prequel with yeah. Rachel Segler, which I haven't seen. Which uh, it, it's very. I mean, I'm I'm trying to get excited about. It, to be honest, I, I think she's fabulous, and she gets to sing a bit. Um, she sort of sings during the reaping, and that's her show of defiance um, to the Hunger Games authorities. But um, it, it, yeah, you know, it's it's that's the thing that's happening. Uh, the Wish trailer was up. That's the new Disney animation, mm-hmm. um, which features Chris Pine as the bad guy. Uh-oh. Um, I know. And Ariane DeBose as our, our heroine who uh, lives in a magic kingdom and basically uh, Chris Pine's King Magnifico, which is a good name for a baddie, um, basically steals everybody's wishes and he's after hers and she won't give it over. Um, and she also, uh, in the trailer, we see her making a wish that um, gives her pet goat the power to talk, which, um, you know, if <laughs> anyone doesn't know, is actually James's backstory. So... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> wow. Speaking of James's backstory, uh, it will be explored in a brand new film uh, called Transformers 1, which will tell the story of how Optimus Prime and Megatron were, were besties for a long, long time. And then they became unbesties and then they became worsties. And Wait, a, really? Yeah. Is this a thing that's really happening? This is a thing that's really happening because I thought you were going to segue into it when you were talking about the Transformers trailer, but uh, but you didn't because you I didn't, didn't know of, of no. its existence. So this was announced, uh, this has been announced, I don't know whether it was announced at CinemaCon or not, but uh, it is going to be an animated movie telling the, the story of how Optimus Prime and Megatron fell out. Uh, oh, is boy. It is meant to be the first part of a trilogy. Oh, and boy. That sound you can hear is Amon vibrating <laughs> with rage right now because Optimus Prime is not going to be voiced by Peter Cullen. Opti- <gasps> Optimus Prime is going to be voiced by, can you guess? I'll give you three guesses. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Two more guesses. Um, you remember when Chris Evans voiced Buzz Lightyear? Think that, but not Chris Evans. Oh, Ryan Gosling. No. One more. You know the way there was a controversy when Chris Pratt, one of the one of the Hollywood Chris's, voiced Mario in the Super Mario Brothers mo- movie, yes. and when Chris Evans, one of the Hollywood Chris's, voiced Buzz Lightyear in the Lightyear movie, think along those lines. Is it Chris Hemsworth? It is Chris Hemsworth. My word, we <laughs> led him to the water and he finally drank. Chris Hemsworth is going to play young Optimus Prime. Brian Tyree Henry is going to be young Megatron. Scarlett Johansson's in the cast. Keegan-Michael Key is in the cast. Because of course, of course he is. You can't have an animated movie these days without Keegan-Michael Key showing up. Uh, John Hamm is going to be Sentinel Prime. And Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, Keegan-Michael Key is Bumblebee. And Lawrence Fishburne oh, cool. is going to be Alpha Trion. Alpha Alpha Trion? Trion? Anyway, but, yeah. But uh, I imagine... That this casting has met with some opposition, shall we say, from Transformers fans who think that Peter Cullen has to voice the character. Yeah, but at the same time, it's a very good list of people. Like those are all really good people. So, fingers crossed. I mean, I don't see an Orson Welles among them, admittedly, but um, he's dead, you know, Alan. And an, an Orson Welles. I didn't say oh, the okay. Orson. Was Orson Welles, Welles the know. voice of Omicron? Was it specifically Omicron? Yeah, he was it? the voice of the planet, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Or was it Unicorn? 
Unicorn. 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 I thought it was Omicron. Look, perhaps we should read the feature on the Empire website, which explains on this. I think that would. I'm sorry, I'm too busy reading features on Vanity Fair. That's fair. Vanity Fair, in fact. Yes, so that is that is news. That is something that is happening. So well done, everybody. I hope that Chris Hemsworth does a Greek accent. Yes, should we do should we do it another way, Chris, for safety? Nope. <laughs> uh, it was Unicron. Unicron, yeah. Unicron. So who's Unicron. Omicron? I don't know. You're making I, things I, up. I, I, I'm I feel like confused. he's just another dude. Omicron, Unicron. Oh, have we made up Omicron? Is Omicron not a thing and it's actually Unicron? I think you've made up Omicron. I don't know what's. It's like I say, it's very, very early in the morning. It's so. actually not that early. It was much it's earlier. Because we've been we talking for like an hour and a half. But it's not early now. This isn't like normal time. I would probably now be up. Explain to me how time works. Last thing I want to talk about. Mm. I can't believe none of you brought this up. It's the greatest trailer of all time. It was released this week. Okay. For a little film I like to call. The Equalizer 3. <gasps> I did this watch this last night, yes. is a good yes. point, and it does look brilliant. Robert McCall versus the Mafia, fucking here for it. I, I mean, obviously, I mock you for your Equalizer folly regularly, and I think the Equalizer 2 is a bad sequel. I really like the first one, though. Get but this looks great. back. This step looks great. The <laughs> okay, step but, back. But Chris, are you, aren't you worried? Because it says, you know, he meets his equal, which... Yeah. Amused me. I hope she's called Lizer. <laughs> <laughs> Who's his equal going to be? He doesn't meet his equal. Uh, there's no equal for Robert McCall. He is without equal. Uh, this is so much fun, especially now because, you know, Denzel, you, you know, God bless him. God love him. Uh, he now looks like a man who's near retirement age, which is what he is in real life. And it's just hilarious to watch this man sit in a room with, with much younger uh, more athletic people and beat the living fuck out of them uh, and <laughs> and sit in a room with like tw 12 guns to his head and just go I'm going to give you 10 seconds or 9 seconds 9 to, seconds, uh, yeah, not even 10 not even 10, 10's for, you know, 10's for wimps uh, I'm going to give you 9 seconds and then he he basically just you know, undoes them in, in, in wonderful style uh, I love both of these first, these first two movies and I'm here for the third one, I did not expect him to go to Italy and beat the living crap out of the mafia but I'm, I'm yeah, I'm there for it uh, is there anything else you want to talk about real quick, or shall we move Very on? Very quick mention for the trailer for Next Goal Wins, which is Taika oh, Waititi's yes. fictionalised version of the the story of the American Samoa football team, um, who were in, in very bad shape, let's be honest, um, when they got a new coach who tried to turn them around. Uh, this, um, this seems a little bit heightened from what I remember of the documentary, but... You know, still excited to see it. I think it was shot 16,000 years ago at this point. It but, was, uh, yes. It, it is was. finally approaching. Yes, and they have remembered that this movie exists. Uh, so, <laughs> as far as I can understand, Taika Waititi uh, con conceived, prepped, wrote, shot, edited, and released Thor Love and Thunder after wrapping principal photography on Nick Skull Wins. Ordinarily, that would be a bad sign. I'm saying, but uh, they've stuck it in the uh, awards season release mm -hmm. date. So it doesn't look like an awardsy movie to me. Looks like just a bit of fun, yeah. really, with Michael Fassbender doing comedy because he's a he's a man. He's a lovely fellow in real life, but he's he's a man who's not given to having fun on the big screen. No, I would say. no he isn't. Yeah, yeah. you see, if, if Fassbender shows up, fun turns tail and runs usually. <laughs> but uh, this looks like a it could be a, a good one. Could be a laugh. Well, should we have a final guest? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Who do you want? Do you want David Lowry or David Lowry? Oh, it's a tough choice. 
David Lowry. David Lowry. David Lowry it is. Uh, yes, indeed. So David Lowry is, uh, for my money, one of the most interesting directors working in American cinema today. Uh, he's a chap you can't pin down. So he'll make something weird and unsettling and profound and esoteric like The Green Knight or Ain't Them Body Saints. And then he'll pivot and do a kid's film like Pete's Dragon or Peter Pan and Wendy, which is the movie that he has coming out today, as a matter of fact, on Disney Plus and is the latest Disney live action animation adaptation and uh, tells the story, of course, of Peter Pan and Wendy, uh, who is played by Ever Anderson who is the daughter of Paul W.S. Anderson and Mila Jovovich. So that's, that's made me feel really old. <laughs> <That's made> <laughs> me feel... <laughs> he is in Cologne, Germany at the moment, prepping his new movie, Mother Mary, which sounds incredible and insane. I caught up with him last Sunday on Zoom. So thanks to David Lowry for giving up part of a Sunday to have a chat with an idiot. <laughs> it can't be easy. It can't be easy for him going, all right, I'm going to talk to Empire Magazine. Next to Vanity Fair, one of the great bastions of entertainment <laughs> journalism. Uh, God, I can't wait to be asked really serious, hard-hitting, impactful and profound questions. Oh, no, he's an idiot, is, is what must be done on them as they, they navigate the interview. Feel free to jump in at any time and disabuse both me and the listeners of that notion. Oh, no, Chris, Helen that's not what James. happens at all. You're not an idiot. Thank we will, you. when necessary. <laughs> Keep talking, Chris. Maybe we'll find something that we <laughs> want to contradict at some point. Here we are, David Lowry. Always have a, a blast talking to David Lowry and uh, enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the writer and director of Peter Pan and Wendy, David Lowry. How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, we've established just before I pressed record, David, that you're in Cologne. How's Cologne treating you? It's been great so far. The weather has been crazy, but it's been delightful being here. I've never been here before, but I've been uh, living here since February, prepping a new movie. Why Cologne? We were chasing soundstage space. <laughs> and uh, there's a lack of soundstage, as I'm guessing, across the world, which is a good thing, right? It shows that the, the film industry's in fine fettle. That's why we built London for Peter Pan Wendy in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> only place you could find a soundstage uh, the magic of the movies did you come to London at any point for the filming of this movie I we did not set foot in London once except for casting we did all the casting in London and I scouted Wales we thought maybe we'd shoot in Wales but ultimately everything was in Canada and the Faroe Islands which is incredible because I thought that's interesting Faroe Islands because uh, there's a there's a a feeling of Ireland at times about Neverland in your movie. I thought maybe you'd shot there for a little bit. You know, J.M. Barry wrote the original manuscript for Peter Pan and Wendy, uh, at least partially in Scotland. And so one of our touchstones for our version of Neverland was the Isle of Skye. Right. And we didn't quite shoot there. We did have that in mind consistently when we were location scouting and we were looking for landscapes that had that same sense of wonder and magic. Where did you begin with this? Because you've had your, you've had your Disney live action adaptation experience already with Pete's Dragon, but I sense that was uh, your way into that was a very different way from your way into Peter Pan and Wendy because you were hired as a writer in that one initially. Is that correct? That's correct. It was sort of like a. It sort of that that project snuck up on me, and it ultimately became a movie that was immensely personal to me and that I'm immensely proud of. But I, at first, it was indeed a writing job. 
which I desperately needed because I was flat broke at the time. <laughs> With Peter Pan and Wendy, that that came about right as we were finishing Pete's Dragon. Disney approached me and asked me if I was interested in in tackling this one because, of course, they were at that point, you know, sort of committed to the idea of of adapting all of the animated films into live action. And this was certainly one of those crown jewels that was inevitable. And I initially, I was very hesitant to commit to it because I love so many other Peter Pan movies. And I didn't know if I could do something distinct enough or original enough or that would that would feel like I was able to put my own mark on it. Because so much of my mark, I felt, was informed by other iterations of this tale that I loved. But within a couple of days, I kind of got hooked on the idea, <laughs> no pun intended, and was uh, was fully on board. What was, the, what was the hook, no pun intended? I just thought back to the days when my brothers and I, I'm the oldest of nine kids, so I have a lot of siblings, and we would just spend what feels like in my memory, like long afternoons just running through the woods with wooden swords and fighting each other playfully and swashbuckling and just shouting at the top of our lungs. And I thought if I could capture some of that spirit in a movie, it would be worth doing. And the movie that I could capture it in seemed like a Peter Pan movie. And was there something in, in terms of capturing that feeling and uh, and bottling that, I guess, for for younger kids? You know, nowadays there's a lot of more stuff attracting kids' attention. And were you concerned that maybe Peter Pan had lost some relevance? And is is there maybe a, a drive in this film to to bring that back for kids? I think perhaps it's lost some of its relevance to adults, maybe. Maybe there are adults who feel like we don't need another version of Peter Pan. But I do think that looking at my nieces and nephews and how excited they are for this movie, I think they intrinsically know this story somehow. I don't know whether they've seen the Disney movie or whether they've seen other versions of it. But I know that the mythology is baked into their upbringing somehow. And they're excited about seeing it on screen again. And that speaks to the evergreen nature of this property and the and the at its core essence the ideals that i think won't ever get old so to speak like the Mm. idea of not wanting to grow up is something that we're all always going to deal with we're all going to wrestle with and that idea is so wrapped up in peter pan to the point that we have a term peter pan syndrome to describe it that there's always going to be value in a new version of the story. And I think it always will appeal to younger audiences. And I hope older audiences as well. I think there are people who definitely have already checked out. They've heard that there's a new Peter Pan movie. They're not going to see it. But if they're interested in seeing it, if there is that appeal, I hope they'll find the same value in it that I did when I decided that it was worth pursuing. I would hope that they don't feel that they should check out, David, because I think there's there's a... Uh, I don't know. I think there's a feeling or an assumption that there are more Peter Pan movies than there actually are. That's probably true. I think, I think you know, maybe a little goes a long way, but there aren't that many. I can count on one hand the ones that like really hold sway over the culture. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's the, the 1953 Disney animated version. There's Spielberg's version, which is obviously a, a, a weird, wild, gonzo take on, on Peter Pan. There's Joe Wright's movie from a few years ago. Uh, and there's a 2003 one. 
The 2003 one was the one that loomed largest in my mind because that was the one that on an emotional level connected with me the most when I first saw it. And it also is the quintessentially perfect adaptation of Jane Barry's book. I realized as I tried to adapt the book more faithfully myself that that movie had done such a perfect job of it that I needed to go in a completely different direction. So where did you start? What was your way in? I had many ways in. You know, I started writing in 2016, and here we are seven years later, and the movie's finally come out. And the number of iterations that the script has gone through uh, is numerous. And of course, I've made three other movies over the course of that as well. And yeah. each one of those informed the writing process of Peter Pan and Wendy in some shape, way, or form. But I think the the real the 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 thing that made it a the thing that the, the thing that gave me my way in was this idea of Wendy having a shift in perspective from hanging on from fearing the future to looking forward to the future. And there was an early draft where we began with Wendy being born and then rapidly just ran through her entire life all the way up into where she we meet her in the movie. And then later on in the movie, we go from where she is on the edge of the plank all the way to her deathbed. And there are vestiges of that left in the movie, like that those versions were probably far too experimental and too uh, <laughs> upsetting and also far too expensive. But <laughs> the idea of a character being at a point in her life where she is letting go of all of the happy memories that defined her and finding her way into looking forward to all of the possibilities that lay ahead of her, that really became the central arc of the movie and the thing that around which we could build everything else. And doing that, it had an interesting phenomenon, which was it turned Peter into almost as much of an antagonist yeah. as Captain Hook. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting. And also the way that you you are at pains to deepen and humanize Hook uh, as well, I thought was I thought was really interesting. There was an immense parallel between Hook and Wendy. And that backstory that we created for Hook was designed to do that, to show that that Hook and Wendy are in many ways mirror images of one another, and they've both been brought to Neverland by this young rapscallion Peter Pan. And and if Wendy makes the wrong choices, she could end up very much in the same boots as Captain Hook. Yeah, absolutely. There's a kind of there's a, a a a cold a coldness to Peter Pan. There's a callousness to him sometimes, which I think I think it's really interesting that you've played it up uh, in this movie. It's something that's there in the original animated film, but we he nonetheless is so everyone just goes along with him. No one ever questions him, and we as an audience member also just kind of go along with him. But he is at times arrogant, at times obnoxious, at times at almost all times, completely wrong in his perspective on on what to do and how to do it. And I thought it would be really valuable to poke holes in that with this movie, to question it, to to stand up to that, as opposed to just going along with whatever Peter tells us to do. Absolutely. Is that partially, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, J.M. Barry, you know, called his novel Peter and Wendy, but was there... Was that part of the reason why you you included Wendy as as part of the title? Was it, which I imagine was something that you did fairly early on. It was really early on. As soon as we were revisiting the book, that became clear that that was a necessary thing to do, and it just gave us 
we didn't need to ask for permission to do that, but it just sort of guided our hand as we as we crafted the story and let Wendy rise in prominence as the protagonist. Just very, very quickly as well on on casting, Ever Anderson uh, is is great in this. And uh, when I heard her real speaking voice, I was I was quite floored um, because she's she's full on Los Angeles. Uh, but obviously, her her parents are, are quite famous. Now, I was interviewing Paul Anderson last year for Event Horizon because I'm obsessed with that film. But uh, uh, let's talk about that. Let's stop here and just talk about how good Event Horizon is. For a few I, I, listen, David, I could do another half hour in Event Horizon if you if you want to go you, 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 go for it. <laughs> Say your piece. <laughs> Say your piece. It's great. Yeah, I love Event Horizon. But he was talking about how he had just been on set of your movie a few times because they were chaperoning and looking after Ever. Was that an interesting experience, looking over and having Paul Anderson and Millie Ovovich there now and again? It was really cool. And to be honest, we spent a fair amount of time talking about Event Horizon. <laughs> it was like, great. You'd be sitting over there at Video Village and I could just be like, oh, hey, there's this new uh, anniversary Blu-ray that just came out that I got. Would you autograph this for me? You're kidding me. I didn't actually, it was mailed to my address in the US, so I wasn't able to actually get him to autograph for me, but I, I told him, I let him know that I had just purchased it. That is insane. That is wild. Um, I have a really dark story about seeing it for the first time that I will not share right now, but some, we'll, we'll save that for another, another story, my, my Event Horizon origin story. Oh, really? Okay. Well, now I'm intrigued. Now I'm yeah, intrigued. But this, is, this means you have to have me on again in the future. Oh, of course. Absolutely. You're welcome anytime. It is uh, open door policy here, David. You know that. But uh, but, uh, but, real quick, on that casting, on ca- you know, casting uh, Ever and, and, and Jude uh, as, as, as Wendy and Hook, were those, in, in a way, I don't know whether they were more pivotal in a way for you than casting Peter Pan in this? I would say every role was pivotal in a different way. We cast Peter and Wendy together. We did a, a, a worldwide search as one does. And ultimately, we all went to London and did some in-person auditions. And Ever and Alexander were just far and away the, the Peter and Wendy that I saw in my mind. But what was really interesting was that that was in 2020, in, in late February 2020. And they were both Ultimately, of course, we then delayed the movie and shot it a year later, and they were both much younger. Mm-hmm. They were they were they they appeared quite a bit younger. If you look at the original, maybe someday we'll release the original screen test with the two of them because it was a different version of themselves. And then we all, you know, went our separate ways during COVID and reconvened a year later to make the movie. And the dynamic had changed because they had started to tiptoe towards adolescence. And the ways in which they had changed over that year was really interesting and really, again, sort of changed the way in which we approached the movie. You know, when you're making a movie with with young actors of a certain age, it it is really interesting how much of a difference six months can make. And that happened while we were shooting, too. While we were shooting, they making a movie about kids who don't grow up. They grew up over the course of the six months shoot as well. And it really was interesting watching their dynamic evolve just on a on a existential level because of the changes they were going through as people. Yeah, because I, I, I thought it was really interesting. Alexander's voice seems to be primarily on the verge of breaking, which I thought was a really interesting uh, thing. I'm sure he wouldn't want me to say this on a podcast, but like from the time we started prep to the time we started shooting, he changed quite a bit. <laughs> it, was, it was a very sudden change in the last two weeks of prep. And now he talks like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 Joshua, who plays uh, John Darling, 
we had to digitally shrink him because by the time we were finished shooting, he was taller than everybody else on set. He was as tall as Jude. And so we just had to keep, you know, on, in post-production, just keep bringing him down, bringing him down, bringing him down. <laughs> That's wild. And, uh, and what about Jude? Where, where did the idea to cast Jude come from? Jude was on, you know, I really wanted to take a Shakespearean approach to Hook. I, th- I saw him and Smee particularly as sort of a, a Shakespearean duo. At the time, it was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. At other time, well, which isn't specifically Shakespeare, uh, but a sp- Shakespeare spinoff. But I also saw a lot of, um, oddly, a Iago and Othello in those characters. And, and some of that didn't make the final cut, but there was a lot of that baked into our approach. And so I wanted someone who had that Shakespearean gravitas to play Hook, but who also could bring that mustache twirling, dastardly sense of villainy that we all remember from the original animated film uh, and who could who could embody that perfectly and then switch in a second to a villain who is so wounded and so open about that woundedness and so confused about how, how open he is about that woundedness that we can't help but empathize with him. And there were a number of things about Jude that made that feel like he was, made it feel like he was the right choice. But I think the the biggest one was talking to him about, you know, in our initial conversations about his own history with the character. And when he described playing Captain Hook and Peter Pan with his son, when they, when his son was quite young, I just thought, okay, he's going to be drawing upon that when he plays this part, he's going to bring that to it. He's going to bring that degree of personal history to it. And that was exactly what I wanted with this character. I wanted a character who was play acting to some degree, but had, but that, but the play acting was on an incredibly personal and deep and intrinsic level. And and I just, I knew Jude would be able to do that. I've got to wrap uh, wrap up in a second, David, but was, was Jude your way into skeleton crew or was that something, (laughs) was was that, or or did you have another way in to that? It was the happiest of accidents where as with all things, Star Wars, I had to sign a number of NDAs. In fact, I had to, I had to sign on to the project knowing almost nothing about it other than that it was a Star Wars project. And then I, you know, signed the contract, signed on and, and they're like, okay, here's what it's about. And here's who's in it. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And then I called Jude and was like, so I hear you're doing a Star Wars project. And he's like, yeah, who told you that? I was like, well, I'm doing one too. And he's like, oh, which one are you? Which one are you doing? I'm like, yours. And we were just, it made us both so happy because we ended this we ended Peter Pan just instantly wanting to work together again. We were looking for something else to do. And that this just accidentally dropped into both of our laps without us, either of us realizing it was, was truly a gift. Uh, obviously, I can't ask you too much about Skeleton Crew at this point, but Jude Law, kids. So you must have had uh, Peter, Peter Pan and Wendy flashback at some point. There was, there was immense deja vu for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> all right, we'll get into another time, hopefully, on that one. Um, Real quick, before I, w- I want to ask about Mother Mary, because that's the, the, the movie you're prepping at the moment. Uh, but I was on your IMDb page today, David. And I, I don't know why, because I know you, I know your your credits. I know what you've directed, but, but I was looking anyway. And it struck me, something, something interesting struck me. You may have been thanked in more credits of other movies by other filmmakers than most filmmakers I've ever heard of. So... Like going back to more, more recent, most recently, you were sp- given special thanks for Megan, 
thanks for everything everywhere all at once. Uh, let me see. There was a really cracking one. Special thanks for the quarry. Uh, special thanks for uh, for XX. Uh, very special thanks on Taika Waititi's Hunt for the Wilder People in 2016. What have you done to deserve all these thanks, David? I I I think maybe I just like watch rough cuts and maybe tell people they've done a good job. <laughs> Is it that simple? It might, it might just come down to that. I'm like, great job. Your movie's great. No, I I try to I, I help out any way I can. I love I love being of aid to other filmmakers at any point in their career. And anything I can do to help, I always I always want to be there for other directors in the way that other filmmakers were there for me and and still are there for me. And I I didn't know I was in the special thanks of Megan until someone texted me. I went to see Megan and didn't make it through. I didn't stay for all the credits. And when I when I heard that, when someone texted me, I was like, that might be my favorite. I'm, pr- I'm more proud of that credit than any other I have, I think. Anything I've directed, I'm <laughs> so happy to be in the special thanks of Megan. And lastly, I've got to ask my mother, Mary. Uh, yeah. So you're about, what, five weeks out from shooting? Yeah, we start five weeks from tomorrow. Amazing. And this is, this, this feels like, you know, I said the word, the the phrase wild swings earlier on for Peter Pan and Wendy. This feels like a, uh, like a wild swing. It is a wild swing. And it's, it's so weird how they happen because I started writing this while we were shooting the green Knight. Right. I remember like one weekend, just like I was really stressed out while we were filming and I went home and just started pouring all of those frustrations into this, this screenplay. And the first 20 pages that I wrote back there in Ireland are pretty much the same 20 pages that we'll start shooting in five weeks. But in that time, I've also, you know, finished The Green Knight, gone through that entire journey, which was very prolonged because of COVID. And so was Peter Pan and Wendy. And, and so I've come out the other end. And in some ways, it's going to be impossible for this not to feel like a reaction to what I've just made. And yet it preceded the movies that I've just <laughs> made by several years. And that's the way I keep doing things. I just am always like, from to my own detriment sometimes, just thinking like three or four movies ahead because I just got all of these ideas that I just want to express. And so this is one of those. It's a very personal movie, perhaps like the most directly, it's not autobiographical by any means, but it is the one where I'm obfuscating myself less than any other to some degree. And... And it's strange. It's a very strange movie, but it's and th- and that makes it scary. I'm very frightened right now because going into this, I I'm I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but I know that good things come from me being afraid. Oh man, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Uh it's gonna be a blast. David, as always, the door is open. Whenever that movie comes out, come back on, talk about it, and maybe then we'll get your event horizon origin story. I'll be here for it. <laughs> Fantastic. David Lowry, always a pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, so that was David Lowry. And now let's barrel straight into the reviews section of the show. And let's start with Peter Pan and Wendy. Hell's Bells, Peter Pan is a well that filmmakers return to every now and again. Although, Mm. as we established in the interview with David Lowry, not as often as people think. No, but there have been three this century. Yeah. so it's it it's been it's been done a lot recently. Um this one is um 
it was an odd beast, this one. I had, I had a little bit of trouble sort of getting into it. So the story is pretty faithful in its in its broad strokes to, you know, Jen Barry's Peter Pan and indeed Disney's Peter Pan, but they have tweaked around the edges. So so yes, Wendy uh, Ever Anderson's character is is moving out of the nursery. In fact, she's being sent away to boarding school, um, leaving her brothers behind um, when Peter Pan shows up with Tinkerbell, uh, played by Yara Shahidi. And... Um, and takes them all off to Neverland. Um, but they shot this in Canada. So Neverland is beautiful. It's an incredible sort of coastline, little islands, but it looks like Scotland. You know, it looks like, well, it looks like Canada. It looks, you know, grassy and 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 quite bare and beautiful, but in an austere way, which is not what I associate with Neverland. So instantly I had a little bit of a problem just kind of visually getting into this film um, because it's beautiful, but it isn't sort of my Peter Pan in my head. And then, you know, the story plays out roughly as it does in every other version. I mean, full credit to to Larry for for casting, first of all, really inclusively for the, the lost kids. Uh, they are a much more diverse and interesting bunch than we've seen before, and they're delightful together. Tiger Lily is now played by an actual Native American, which is very, very, very long overdue, uh, things like that. Um, you have Jude Law playing Captain Hook, who is very good at the quiet scenes and the the sort of the menace of Hook. Um, they give Hook a sympathetic backstory, which I personally don't think is necessary, but it's certainly an interesting note to play. The only problem with, with Jude Law is I don't think he's really here for the pantomime villainy bits. So I think he's good at quiet menace and he's good at quiet heartbreak. And then the other bits were, you know, Hook is supposed to be kind of big and boastful and loud, didn't didn't land quite as well for me. So it was just a very, it was a very weird film, I thought. It lags a bit in the middle. I think younger kids are going to be bored, frankly. And while the, the, the leads are very good, um, Alexander Maloney is Peter Pan. And as I said, Ever Anderson is, is Wendy. I mean, Ever Anderson is 15, but she does look older. And so it's an you know, you you don't feel that kind of edge of childhood vibe from her because she already seems well into her adolescence. She already seems like a a very sensible growing up person. So she doesn't quite seem as young as maybe Wendy should. She she does look older than Peter herself, and so you get that bit of their dynamic is right. You know, the the sense that Wendy has a little bit more sense than Peter does, and sort of is able to kind of counsel him a little bit. And you can see the kind of the the motherliness angle. Um, mm. That the lost boy seen in her, but but because she does look older, just because you know girls sometimes just shoot up in height, and you know boys are left behind a bit in, in adolescence at times. Um, she she you know she she looks like she's already sort of there. Well, she, she's already a growing up. As David Lowry said in the interview, whenever he cast him, then they had to yeah. shut down for the pandemic, and then by the time they came back to filming, mm. a year had gone, and she had shot up, and he yeah. had shot even Alexander Maloney had shot up, and his voice was on the verge of breaking. Which oh, is, gosh. I think, an it, well, I, th- I genuinely feel it's an interesting, interesting note yeah, to play yeah. because this Peter Pan has a voice that is on the verge of breaking. Mm. So he's on the cusp of of adolescence. He's on the cusp of of adulthood, and I, I think that makes it a really interesting dynamic to, dynamic to play. Not mm. least the fact, and again, this is something that came up in the interview, the fact that you know Peter Pan, you know, often gets cast as the the redoubtable hero. And here there's and something a little bit more here. complex yeah. about him yeah. here. And uh, he's not the lead, for one thing. Mm. The film could have been just called Wendy. Sometimes Peter Pan feels a little bit like an afterthought in his own movie. 
Uh, she's a much more interesting character. Although there's a, there's a there's a really interesting application of Peter Pan here in this movie. I feel in that he is he's he's this close to being the bad guy of mm. the film, uh, which I liked. And I know you don't like the the origin story or the redemption of of bad guys. But I thought it worked with with Hook. Look, here. I think I think it's an interesting note to play. I just I just don't know that this story necessarily needs it. You know, mm. um, I think that was more my issue. I, I will say also there are while I object to the look overall of Neverland, there are individual shots in this that are drop dead gorgeous. You know, really really stunning moments and stunning scenes in this film that I thought were played very very well. I didn't hate it or anything. I just I just find it slightly discombobulating and and not just because I had very specific ideas of what a Peter Pan story was going to be beyond the fact that I think Neverland should look quite lush more just um it didn't feel maybe as consistently exciting or thrilling as I wanted it to be but I mean no disrespect to anybody in it because I think I thought both the, the, the I thought all the, the child actors were were good I just thought it was an odd beast of a film little drinky game watched the movie because I, I was watching on my big TV, and she was just coming out of the room, and she was like, "What's this?" And I was like, "Peter Pan, that man's a pirate." Okay, okay, she she got the gist, and uh, she didn't mind it. She okay, and, good. there have been moments where obviously where attention wandered. You know, she's four years old, um, but uh, she she liked it. Apart from, and this is what she says after every after I show her any film, I said, "Did you like that film?" And she goes, "Yes." Apart from the bad bits, what she means by that are the bits where people are in peril or in jeopardy. Oh, not just oh, okay. poor filmmaking. Yeah, no, she was going, the mise-en-scene was, was poor. <laughs> very, poor yes. very badly thought through. Whereas my small nephew used to object to any scene where people were talking instead of doing things. That wow. was his... So, that was oh, his so the one. Michael Bay approach to filmmaking. Yeah. Very well, much understood. so, yes. I, I believe he's actually on an internship uh, now with Michael Bay <laughs> at the age of five. Yes. Make that kid an executive immediately. <laughs> All right, we get this one three stars. Uh, three stars. Uh, so I think Helen's maybe low three. I'm high, maybe high three. I think that's fair. Yeah. Right. I, look, I, I, like I said, I didn't hate it. There were lots of interesting ideas. I just had, it didn't quite sing as I wanted it to. I didn't hate it. Empire Magazine. God knows what Fandy <laughs> Fair made of it. Next up, we have the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry. I'm going to say this right off the bat. We gave this two stars. I think that's very harsh. I think so too. I do three as it happens. I do three. Uh, yeah, I thought this was fun. This was this is directed by Hetty McDonald, who directed half of my beloved normal people. This uh, this kind of falls into a genre that I like to call geriantics, mm. which is kind of this this there's a genre of kind of like elder wisdom. They're these sort of gentle, often English, you know, films. They almost all have Jim Broadbent in it. I would put the Duke in here. I, it, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. It's probably falls in it. If you want to spread across the Atlantic, eighty for Brady might even kind of be a subgenre of this. It's the it's the British films where there's a, Someone who has done one eccentric thing their entire life. Yes. <laughs> finally, after 70 years. That's what we are. 100%. Yeah. Uh, and that is what this is. So, this is Jim Broadbent as the eponymous Harold Fry. Uh, and he lives with his wife, Maureen, played by Penelope Welton, uh, receives a letter from an old colleague called Queenie. Uh, and Queenie, it turns out, is in a hospice and she is dying. And that makes him very sad. So, he writes a reply to her and he goes to post it at the letterbox. And then, inspired by a young, 
tattooed pierced millennial as you are at the local petrol station he decides he's going to deliver it by hand he's going to go and see her himself so he sets out on this as we've heard 600 mile hike to go and see her which takes frankly many weeks which i would say is ill thought out when someone is on the verge of death but that's absolutely fine so the idea is that he wants to give her hope he wants to give her hope to keep on living so he's doing this pilgrimage to go up and say hello and as you would expect from this genre as he walks he encounters people along the way and by being slightly old and eccentric that inspires people to find their inner joy and inner purpose he adopts a dog there's a boy there's a whole group of people it's all very sort of almost forest gumpian in that instead of running he's just walking very slowly um and it is incredibly twee, and it's all the things you expect from this. But I will say for this, so this is based on the book by Rachel Joyce. She adapted it. Uh, and there is a thread, there's a sort of bittersweet thread that runs through this. And I think it cuts slightly deeper than most films of this ilk because there's mm. a real vein of tragedy and grief and regret really? to this. <laughs> Indeed. And, uh, and, and I think watching him kind of come to terms with that and grapple with his inner demons makes this slightly less twee than it otherwise could have been. And I, I thought that was really effective. I'm not ashamed to say I cried three times watching this film. <laughs> um, you know, and it, you know, it's not perfect. It's not brilliant. But I thought actually the emotional core of it was sound. And I found it actually at times I found it, I found it quite affecting. So I, I thought it was delightful. Yes, I was quite surprised we gave this two stars as it turns out did most other people, I think, give it around two stars. But I, I'd, have, I'd have given it three because I think it, I think it does, I think I think it does do what it sets out to do and i think it does it quite effectively so there i think the fact that it comes from literary source material rather than being extremely loosely adapted yeah. from a you know quasi true story which you know is not always the case with these these um these stories um and some of them are very good despite being based on a true story like the duke i thought was really fun but um but sometimes it can make them feel very one-dimensional, very kind of by the numbers. And and this one has a little bit more meat to it and a little bit more subtlety at times. And and yeah, you know, it, he isn't, you know, just a lovable codger. Like he has some real, like as James said, some heartbreak and some darkness in his backstory. And I think that gives this a little bit of edge is too strong a word, but something more resembling edge than yeah. most of these it, films. It has some traction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Call it that. I don't know. Maybe maybe people are expecting twee, and when they don't get twee, they turn on it. <laughs> Give Perhaps. me my twee. Yeah, you, you know, we've we've had Smee this week, and now they want twee, <laughs> but they don't get it. You know, uh, I was in a cinema yesterday, and I, I looked at the poster for this, and the poster for this just promises a completely different film. Mm. Uh, it, but basically, it's just a picture of Penelope Wilton and and Jim Broadbent looking like the world's worst Mario and Luigi cosplayers. It's a, it's a much darker, more serious movie than I think it's being marketed as, and maybe that's taking people by surprise. I don't know. I, I thought it was I thought it was really good. I would be high three for sure on this one. And uh, you know, it's brilliantly acted, as you might imagine. And it has just this uh, I, I thought a very, very nice, refreshing structural take on things as well. There is an element of you know, it's Jim Broadbent's film. Absolutely, Jim Bob Benz yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. You know, he is. You know, it's a very physical performance for a man who's what in the seventies now, and I was, I was, I was, a little, I was a little worried for him um, because there's a lot of walking. It's very physical mm -hmm. in that regard. He's not an action hero by any stretch of the imagination. Although the very active taking action makes him a hero, doesn't it? Really, you think about it. You really think about it. Uh, and Penelope Wilton does get a more thankless role yeah, for does. the first half of the movie because she's yeah. basically just sitting seething in her. Yeah house just staring at the walls and being angry 
Um, but there's a there's a warmth that comes into the movie towards the end. I, I thought it was really nice, mm. really touching, really affecting, and and boo to us, quite frankly, for being killjoys. Boo to uh, us and everyone else. And everyone kill else. Yeah. <laughs> Fantasy, Fantasy Fair, Fair probably hated it as well. They yeah. hated it. They hated it. <laughs> Although they had the first look, they had the very first look at the unlikely pilgrimage of yeah. Harold Fry. Bresnikan was accompanied Harold the entire way. Yeah, he was he was helicoptered in. Uh, <laughs> Broadbent had to walk, but Bresnikan got the helicopter treatment. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> two stars <laughs> two stars then for the unlikely pilgrimage of Harold Fry uh, we're going to finish off this week with Polite Society Polite Society now, I haven't seen this one but I hear really good things I think you in particular are going to love it James was a bit more lukewarm on it than I was but I think Boo. you are going to be with me so I'm just counting your vote against me it's two to one James we win anywho this, uh, this is a <laughs> film from uh, Nida Manzur who of course made um, we are Lady Parts, that fantastic Parts. Channel Four uh, drama. I, I, I've heard that about you, but let's—it's <laughs> very early in the morning, James. Is this the text Bobby Wilton? <laughs> yes, I love Lady Parts. I feel that's the kind of stuff that gets Meet you cancelled and then arrested. I love, I love Lady Parts. <laughs> oh God! Uh, oh boy! We are Lady Parts, which is of course her sitcom, Sorry, which is excellent, yes. and which we reviewed on the Pilot TV podcast. Of course, you did. So this is the story of uh, Rhea, who is played by Priya Kansara. She wants to be a stunt woman when she grows up. She writes fan letters to Eunice Huthart, the former gladiator turned stunt coordinator here in the UK, which is delightful because like, I've interviewed her a bunch of times. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> which I one know was she? her. Which one was she? Who, Eunice? Yeah. Oh, I don't remember her. I don't remember her gladiator name. Blade. Blazer. Blazer. She was Blaze. She was really. She was literally Blaze. This is incredible. <laughs> she was Blaze. <laughs> Blaze. So yes, yeah, so Rhea writes her uh, fan letters all the time. She's trying to get an internship as a stunt woman, um, and she hangs out most of the time with her older sister Lena, who's played by Ritu Arya from um, the Umbrella Academy, for example. And uh, and Lena is an art school dropout. She's really kind of struggling in life until. She gets a new boyfriend, and this guy is like the most eligible guy around. He is hot. He's rich. He's got a good job. He's got a doting mum. You know, he seems to have everything going for him. But Rhea is extremely suspicious. uh, Doesn't trust her at all. His mum, by the way, Rahila, is played by Nimra Butcher, who you may remember from Ms. Marvel. And you may be thinking to yourself, "Oh yeah, definitely don't trust her." (laughs) Good instinct. Follow that instinct. So basically, excellent villain face. She really has amazing villain face. She's a gorgeous woman, but it's like she she plays the villain brilliantly. Um, I'm not going to give too much more away than that. What I will say is that this has a really particular tone because fights break out, and you know James and I were talking about this, and James was like, "Are these in her head? Is this really happening? Is she just imagining fights?" And I think the answer is no. These fights are happening in the real world. But then people are shrugging and getting on with their day, and it's no big deal for like a big kung fu fight to break out in the yeah. middle of of the day. And so what we have here is essentially an action comedy of manners. Like this is sort of a Jane Austeny sort of you know comedy about families and and weddings and courtship and you know all these kind of relationships, but with high kicking and with punches and with conspiracies. And I love that. I absolutely love that. They play with action movie cliches um, a lot in this. There is literally a a moment where a villain goes, we're not so different, you and I, um, where I basically punched the air because it was just so ridiculous and over the top. Uh, But 
it's it's so fun. It feels to me like early Edgar Wright. I'm not saying it's quite up there with Shaun of the Dead, but it has that same kind of energy, that same it does. desire to take familiar tropes and familiar, you know, British movie making cliches that were really overplayed and then just do something different with them and mix them up and and make them feel fresh and new. And a great cast, great family dynamic group um with with Rhea and Lena and their parents. I just had a ball. I loved it. It, I, I should qualify by saying at no point did I not like this. I actually thought this was great. I, I think where this... So We Are Lady Parts is fucking brilliant. I don't think it's quite on that level, unfortunately, but I do think it's very good. I think where this works brilliantly is I think the casting is inspired. I think mm. uh, Priya Kansara is outstanding as Rhea, and Ritu Arya, who is brilliant in Lady Parts, is really, really good in this as well. And so I think with those two in place, this just works instantly because they're both really charming. They're really, really fun to be around. And actually, even if you take out all of the and stuff watching those two squabble with each other is just brilliant in and of itself but it's exactly what helen said it's like you're like is this like a weird flight of fancy and you're like oh no this is a proper surreal crazy storyline and it is and you know edgar wright analogies are right like it feels like scott pilgrim made for a fiver but but in a good way so it's one of these things where this is like a little film that could like it's brilliant it has so much potential but and you can't say it lacks polish because it looks beautiful, but I would say because it is, you know, pinning to it, it's, it's pinning the action credentials to the mast. A lot of the actors are doing a lot of the action. So I would say it's not, don't go in there expecting everything everywhere all at once. Do you know what I mean? Like the action is, it's fun, it's showy, but it's not meticulously choreographed uh, in a way that you're completely sucked in by it. So, so a little rough around the edges, but not not necessarily in a bad way. I think I think it's a great film. I think people should see it. I think maybe I was hoping for it. Like, I think maybe the screenplay possibly could have used another pass just to kind of punch up some of the some of the lines in there because I didn't think all of them landed. But I think, but it's got heart. It's got it's got laughs. It's it is great. It is great. And also to see people doing essentially martial arts in those beautiful. Right? And I'm sorry, I don't know the name, but the. These beautiful, basically, at one point, Pakistani wedding dresses, yeah, off the charts, entertaining and just so yes. bright and colourful and and cheering to look at. Wonderful stuff. I also want to give a shout out to some of the supporting cast because I think uh, mm. Ria's friends, played by Serafina Bay oh and Ella Bricoleri, are fucking great. As is uh, Shona Babiemi, who plays uh, Kovacs, who's kind of a friend of me. Yeah. Uh, but those three are brilliant, and I think they provide an excellent kind of counterpoint to her personality as well. So I think it's really, like I say, I think the, the, the characters are really well thought out and really well formed and impeccably cast. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, and the costume design is, is on another world entirely. It's brilliant. So, yeah. Amazing. Lots going for it. Yeah. You guys have sold me. I am sold. I am all in on Polite Society. Uh, little drinking games at a friend's birthday party tomorrow. So it's all in my local cinema. I hey, think hey. I'm going to try and pop along to see it. Uh, there we go. Four stars. Four stars then for Polite Society, which makes it by some distance the film of the week. We don't do that on this show. Fan of the Affair probably do on their podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they probably had we, a great time on set of Polite Society. Did. Yeah, the catering was excellent. Meanwhile, <laughs> I saw the chap from Empire eating off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Callback. <laughs> oh, oh, it's just like a script by Edgar Wright and Simon. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that bagel may well have been the one from Everything Everywhere All at Once. So, this, yes, uh, but you haven't shot yourself to death, so I call it. No, a I'm win. all right at the moment. I'm more, the floor bacteria has not yet taken hold. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god it'll take a little time it's all yeah. good it's all good anyway on that note that is it for this week's Empire Podcast uh, join us next week for more film related fun we'll be joined by well it's the Guardian's last ride and we'll be joined by for my money one of the most fascinating of all the Guardian's cast returning to the Empire Podcast the wonderful Karen Gillen Woo-hoo. Nebula herself very very fun chat uh, and we may be joined by someone else but that hasn't been logged in yet so we shall see we shall see yeah. who knows keep them peeled <laughs> it's fun and games meanwhile Fanity Fair have all the Hollywood Chrises <laughs> <laughs> in conversation for a full hour that's uh, that's exciting so yeah <laughs> <laughs> until we meet again until then until that auspicious occasion I think we did okay for recording this really really stupidly early uh, yeah we should we should get jobs as like breakfast radio hosts I think <laughs> yeah. we've established oh, that we are at our best at the crack of dawn yeah that's what, that's what the kids want to hear when they listen to the radio in the morning. The tales of sending booty texts to Penelope Wilton and Jim Broadbent. That's the perfect way to get out of bed. And moaning about Fanity Fair's access. That's what they want. <laughs> At least we're not moaning about the booty texts. So. This is true. <laughs> they are. They are. Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Uh, we do have squadcast names this week. I'm PJs and Duncan. <laughs> that was good. James Dyer is simply said, 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 which is, of course, a tribute to Bobcat Goldthwait in Police Academy 2 and Police Academy 3. That's true. That is accurate. Goodbye, James. Goodbye. We have Lizzie Kaplan on the Follow TV podcast this week and Joe Russo, who's on talking about Citadel. So that'll be a lot of fun. I did that. Yeah. Helen. We have Helen O'Hara on the Follow TV podcast, more importantly than anything else. That's good. There you go. Uh, the, the standards are slackening even more so. <laughs> hey. Uh, come on now. Exciting stuff on the Pilot TV podcast as well. I'm sure I wasn't entirely listening. <clears throat> it is goodbye also from Helen O'Hara, a.k.a. So Many Regrets. Helen, now we're a full hour and a half on from logging on. Do you yeah. still feel regretful? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we have got this done. And I appreciate you both getting up at stupid o'clock um, so I could go and see Guardians. I, I really do. Thank you both. You are. People I am <laughs> temporarily grateful to. Yeah, people I have met. <laughs> you are pe- uh, over the, these years together, I've come to re- regard you all as people I met. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a line. What a line. Uh, I hope you enjoy Guardians as much as someone who may have seen it but couldn't possibly say mm. did. I, I hope so too. If such a person existed, I hope that I would... Um, love Guardians as much as he or she or they did. We can't say because we don't know. We just don't. No one does. Anyway, it's also goodbye for me. I'm off the text Jim Broadbent and arranged meeting up in Boots later on. <laughs> and why not? Because quite frankly, their meal deal really is fabulous. So sweet chili chicken wrap is off the charts. Thank you for listening. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.